Hey everybody, welcome to the Night Watch Games podcast. This is Pork, and I've got three esteemed guests with me. Uh, we're now in season three, episode seven, where we're talking about the creative process and the chasing of your dreams. So with me, I have Trevor Duvall, I have Travis White, and Carson Bosco. Uh, anyway, we're also filming this episode, so we're going to have some interesting interactions that may not translate to the audio, but uh, you guys can bear with us. All right, yeah, so what I'd like to really talk about with four creatives at the table, most of us focus on role-playing games as our outlet for our creative energies, but role-playing is a great platform for talking about why it is that we're creating, what is it that we're pursuing by spending our hobby time at a table and inviting people that we know and maybe those that we don't know to share this strange hobby with us. Let me start with Trevor. He's probably the most notorious of us um, with your... Nefarious. Nefarious, yeah. Which came first? Was it the voice acting that came first or the the gaming? Kind of at the... It kind of happened at the same time because I started doing voices when I was like five or something. My older brother used to do a bunch of like accents and stuff. And when I was about five, I started imitating him, imitating other people. And I watched a lot of Monty Python as a kid, so I was pretty well-versed with the whole British accent thing. <laughs> I mean, I started gaming, I think, when I was seven. I played my first game of D&D, I think. <clears throat> it all just kind of happened at the same time. Were you using voices in the, the role-playing right yeah, from the start? Yeah, and in fact, what's funny is that when, when my friends watch like the cartoons I do, they'll put it on for their kids or something. And they'll hear from the other room a voice. They'll be like, wait a minute, that was that NPC in that D&D game all those years ago. I remember him. So they're like, we know all your tricks. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have had a couple of campaigns going on throughout the last three or four years. And a surprising feature of those campaigns is Travis, who I don't know if he's actually shown you. He's quite the voice actor himself. He has two uh, specific characters that I know and love. Uh, one is Cramson, which is a halfling. He's a older halfling. An older, yeah, geriatric, geriatric alchemist, halfling. and uh, super sweet, but has now turned into a, a full-blown murderer almost. Has <laughs> <laughs> his moments. And then there was uh, Amon, which is sort of like a Middle Eastern nomad type. It is complicated. And these were both in your campaign? They were in both my campaigns. And while we did a lot of the campaign on the forums and there was a lot of text that we did, once we got to the table, which we can all agree is where the real magic happens, he he came up with these voices. And he was really, I think, the star of our show as far as voices go. Is that something you'd been doing since you were young or like how did that? No, I think um, it's kind of tough. I had sort of taken a had taken a break from role playing and then had an opportunity to get back into it. I went to some half addled Nightwatch games, reel you in. He was doing this discussion thing. Yeah, what is the potential? The potential. Are we meeting the potential of role playing games? Uh, and they were just sort of like a little, kind of like a little seminar type forum thing. Semi controversial. Semi-controversial. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah. It it was interesting, and it hit a lot of things with me. Uh, A lot of the issues I had with role-playing games, I think he was hitting on. I'm at that point in my life where, not just in role-playing games, I get the same feeling in comic books, things that I used to love, where you're just always a little disappointed. Video games. You you see the potential of it all, and you're just like, why do they have to stop here? Uh, And, you know, it's just something about mass market popularity, where the average person wants to draw a line and where I don't. 
Lowest um, common denominator. Lowest common denominator. So, so like, like what, for example? A lot of it just has to do with storytelling. Just breaking away from some of the base tropes. One of it, things get so refined by genre. Take uh, role-playing games. You're play, if you're playing in a fantasy setting, people have such strict ideas of what that fantasy setting is. And then you take something like D&D. Oh, this is now 5e D&D. We're going to really define. We're going to put the pins into the butterflies and determine not only what fantasy is, but what 5e fantasy is. Hmm. It really is just pinning everything down to where I think it gets us away from where we initially wanted to go with role-playing. The, the sandbox West Marches style thing. Yeah, not, not open sandbox. I mean, even that, the word sandbox has right. come to mean something very yeah. specific. Everything is politics now. <laughs> even uh, these terms. Was there a rail running through your sandbox? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was talking about some things, and I was like, yeah, okay, this this is interesting. Uh, and then at some point, we, I guess, kept in touch a little bit through games. He invited me into a role-playing campaign. And I had just gone through the first iteration of this character with some online Roll20 style guys. And it was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was hobo killer. Oh, yeah. Um, Min-maxers. I mean, the guy called me before the campaign. He's like, I'm looking at your character and I'm looking at the other characters. And and I like finished his sentence and, I, and I'm like, and you're thinking I'm not up to snuff because I didn't max 18. The, you are you know, dangerously underpowered. I'm so underpowered. <laughs> um, and I knew at that point exactly what I was getting into. And I should have just cut bait right about then. And I didn't. I went through it. And it was a nightmare. Do you are you guys all DMs here? Have you have you DM Travis? I know you are. I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are are you mostly a player? Like over the course of your gaming career? Uh I'm about fifty fifty, I think. And well, because I did a two and a half year as a player. As a player, yeah. yeah. That was in your Forgotten Realms campaign? Yeah, the Forgotten oh. Realms two creek crossing setting. Uh, I find that I'm probably 90%, 95% the DM control issues, I think. And again, it comes back to this <laughs> this theory about what's the potential of role-playing. And as a DM, you can impart that upon your players and see if they step up or not. I have to admit, I've been really enjoying the past couple of sessions of Twilight 2000 where I get to be the player. It, it's a totally different flavor of gaming. I, I'm with the 90, you know, 95%. I've, I've always kind of assumed that that role in in the games. And and then I, I've at least grown accustomed to it. I think that's why I like it so much is there's there's a real nice sort of comfortability with that stress. There's so many different like philosophies of jamming. Because I know when you and I first met, you, I mean, you, and you do, you have a very strong idea of what you want the game to be, what you want your game to be. I hadn't encountered that before quite in the same, same way that you've, you do things. It's pretty unpopular. Well, it's, it's, it's just different. It, 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 I, I like encountering something new that I haven't seen before because it, it, frankly, it's kind of rare when you come across someone who has a related but different style because our styles aren't completely different. They're not, they're not polar opposites or anything. No, I think on an academic level, we both acknowledge what storytelling and what role-playing do for the people around the table. And I know we're in vast agreement that there's a huge value at being at the table, for one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and versus <clears throat> cyber gaming. Uh, so we're definitely in agreement there. It, it's a completely different world. I mean, like, especially after the last couple of years where most people had to do their gaming online, there's nothing that compares to this. And even now, sitting here with people having a conversation, like, because all my all my, my drinking with the M's episodes are all on yeah. Zoom, right? 
this is this is real life. You can't quite <laughs> clink the glass together. Yeah. There's a magic to being able to high five your buddy because he rolled really well. Yeah. We just did that Twilight 2000 session two weeks ago, and I was notating that we might have had one failed roll the whole night. And so the table was full of high fiving and cheering and <laughs> It's As just, opposed to most nights where we have all <laughs> commiserating, it's not an easy game to got to have another it. shoulder to cry on. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a magic to that. There's a bonding to it. I, I really I like it. When you're in Cyberland, your inhibitions go down, and you feel like you can get away with stuff that you can't be held accountable in person. Hmm. And so people, I think, have a slightly different approach to relationships when there's a screen between you. Because you can't get punched in the face for being a jerk, you know. So people yeah, just I mean, act. That's, yeah, you're right, and it's it, especially with like where people will just go on roll twenty or something, and they'll randomly search. Oh, I, I feel like playing a game today. I'm going to find a group of people that I've never met. You, 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 well, you're rolling the dice <laughs> more ways than one on that. But there's so many different play styles and player styles, and you add to that the fact that people don't have that responsibility of of being in the room with another mm-hmm. human being. You know, you wouldn't say or do certain things to a human being that you would do, yeah. especially if it's a stranger who's maybe just an avatar on a screen that you could just walk away from. No, what the hell with you? There's a the level of trust yeah, that totally. has to be established I'll because. The uh, the guy who was running the Hobo Killer campaign, to his credit, <laughs> he did a pretty thorough interview process one-on-one with each of the people that was interested in the game. So he tried. Um, it didn't work. I mean, he still ended up with a bunch of Hobo Killers. But yeah, he, he actually went and took the time and set up an interview with each of us and talked to us about what he was looking for. And it definitely was not what he ended up with, apparently. One of the guys he already knew, it was like his long term gaming buddy and of course he was the most problematic of the whole bunch the most vocal uh the one that yeah just set the tone for everyone else the one that he wasn't gonna put in check the way he needed to but what i got out of that is i I was excited to get hit the ground with it and give it everything so that's i didn't hold back i did this you know backstory i did this care i really just brought this character to life in a way that i hadn't done since i was a kid when it's easy, you know, when you're yeah. doing those early, you know, 13-year-old campaigns where things just happen. Um, Making rules up. Yeah, so that campaign flopped, got out of that pretty quick, but I still had that character. So I just brought that over, basically. And that's a situation where someone's trying to curate a decent group and it doesn't work. I might do it. What you're talking about is where you already know the people and you're separated, distance, yeah. using it, the internet, using technology to... Get with people you already know, you're, yeah. you're already friends with. I can do that. It's not as good as this. You know, there's sort of an, an opposite problem to that, too. I don't know if you guys have ever run into this, but when you're playing with the same group for so long, again and again and again and again, you start to know them and you know their instincts and you know their responses. <clears throat> and for me, it's like the opposite of playing with strangers, where now I'm concerned that because I know them so well, it becomes predictable. Mm. And that, I hate that, because I don't want any predictability in my game for me or my players. You know what I mean? Have you have you run into that? No. I don't think I play as much as you do. And the playing group itself was pretty dynamic. There's a couple of key people that started with our group that, for various reasons, you know, they, they peel off and start doing their own thing. Uh, and we would fill it with new blood, and it was that new blood that always kept everybody else on their toes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we played long enough as a group to really get stale. And these guys are creative enough that they're coming at it from totally different angles. Like 
um, Travis playing a Middle Eastern stoic swordsman that's got this tragic past that he's trying to come to grips with. And then he contrasts that with the next campaign of a geriatric halfling alchemist that is almost a pacifist. And he finds himself in all this turmoil, two vastly different approaches. And so that was very fresh. And the thing that kept it fresh for our group was the adoption of vastly different character value systems. And so when you were subscribing to the character's value systems, your decision-making matrix was totally different than character A versus character B. And so they were really good at exploring an alien value system that you had to use as your template in this fantastic landscape. And I never knew what they were going to do. And, that's awesome. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of like the pinnacle of role-playing where you have someone that can really inhabit a different character. They they try very hard to play different characters all the time. But in the end, because we're like a such a first-person group, I do this, I do that, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, Thor the fighter does this, that means that we find ourselves falling back on our, on our own responses a lot of the time. And me as a player especially, I hate that. That's why I say I'm a terrible player, because I really have like two characters. And I hate that, you know, because as a player... For me, it becomes so competitive, and I, <laughs> I want to, I want to win the role-playing game, and I hate that. As a GM, I'm not like that. I'm the opposite of that. But as a player, I fall into these, these weird competitive habits where I find myself like playing the same tropes over and over again. Yeah, and it's tough to break it. So I, yeah. I'm, ad- I'm admiring of players that can do that, that can really just throw themselves into something totally new. I've always hated the whole alignment system. Oh, it's so thing. it's so arbitrary and it's dumb. like real life doesn't have that. <laughs> no. Yeah, it. I think it's much more dynamic. You're not stuck in one category. I don't think anyone ever wakes up saying I'm going to be chaotic evil right. today. <laughs> but this is also why I have a problem with class and level based games. Yeah, because too, it's too arbitrary. It's too arbitrary, and it's too. If you're a fighter, especially in old school D and D, if you're a fighter. You, you you can never expand beyond your boundaries. You are a fighter. And I hate that. I always hated that about D&D. Yeah, and it, life is about profession and need. It's not about this arbitrary class. Like, yeah. You might be a guard yeah. for a time, and this is what you need as a guard. This is what you work on as a guard. This is what you take away from being a guard when you move on to the yeah. next stage of your life. Which is why life path systems are so cool. Like, yeah. like Traveler does that in sci-fi. Zweihander does Zweihander that. Zweihander does that. Yeah. Profession <coughs> system. Right. The which old is Warhammer. Warhammer yeah. did yeah. that. Because mm-hmm. that gives, I mean, talk about richness. And you can character. switch. You and can, you can switch, right. Yeah. You can try something new, which is... And it's a good starting point. <clears throat> sure. Like the way Conan has you pick an archetype and then level up is a matter of you're just constantly adding skills right it has nothing to do with where you started right there is no class system yeah that's like RuneQuest or Mythos yeah, yeah. same thing you know like you're just, just yeah. that once I discovered that element of different role playing game systems it opened up quite a bit and there's so many people out there, especially, you know, newer people to the game that because they got into D&D through Critical Role or whatever, to them, D&D is, that's it. And if you say to them, oh, well, what other systems do you play? And they're kind of eyes glass over because they don't understand that there are other systems out there. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of feel like what I want to do with my channel is introduce people to a whole new world that mm-hmm. there's so many different styles of play out there and, there, and there's so, so many styles of game. You don't have to block yourself into this artificial box that D&D does. You know, not that I'm ragging on D&D. Uh, I'm totally right. <laughs> <laughs> totally ragging on D&D. Well, that's a lot of, a lot of my game. GMing in the past decade or so hasn't really been me setting up 
and running a single group through campaigns, it's been sort of this advocacy where I'm trying to go 5e adjacent and get people into something else, um, <laughs> trying to siphon <laughs> Trick them off them. <laughs> in some way. Uh, did a couple with Adventures in Middle Earth, which is uh, the yeah. one ring <clears throat> right. through the 5e system. Right. Which was um, a brilliant idea to try and take a property away. that people love and know. Same with Conan, you know, take something that people know and love or familiar with in a system that they're not. They're willing to go through a one shot. I did a lot of one shots right. in the past decade. And you guys were talking about like the pressure of GMing. I will say there's nothing <laughs> more pressure based than doing a damn one shot. Everything is like, yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm a, I'm a director on set, you yeah. know, and I got to meet all these. Yeah, especially if you're talking about a system that really departs from like the D20 thing. But to like new D&D players, they mm -hmm. I, I've seen it. I've seen these new players that literally can't understand that there's a different way to hit somebody besides rolling a D20. Mm -hmm. And it just blows my mind, you know? Well, and I, uh, I run high school game club, you know, and I've done that for several years. And I would always try to find systems that are a little bit a little bit off from D&D to try to get the kids going. Uh, one of them I used a bit was the Fantasy Age, which was based off of the Dragon Age right. system. And it's a, it's a uh, it's 3D6, 3D6 system. With the stunt die, which is a neat Stunt die, and it's a very simple system, and it worked great. And they had the whole Titan's Grave. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is that sword and laser? Or? Yeah, sword and spaceship or whatever. Yeah, but it <laughs> it's sort of that in between uh, sci-fi and fantasy, bringing it all together sort of thing. And I've run that a lot with kids, and they love it and pick up on it and just go to town. Yeah. Um, has your, has your are, stuff been mostly D and D over the years? Yeah, for the most part. Um, I I try to branch out into <clears throat> into other things, but the first question that you asked, you know, do I encounter that? That situation where you know you get to know the players, and now you start to anticipate, and 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 how how does that loop sort of you know how do you either get out of that or, or break out of that? And almost all of my experience is D and D five uh, e, and and even my my current game that I run, it's got nine players, which is way too many. For, for, and and yes. I'm well aware. I was well aware of that at the beginning, but the the purpose of it is to show them not that I want them to follow what I do. But, but, you know, if you're a fighter, you can be a fighter however you want. Yes, I know we were going to play D&D because it's the most accessible. We're going to play 5e because it's, it's a big thing. I really try to pose situations where I say, hang on, you know, you, you, I know you, you're my friend, so I know what you're going to say. I know you're going to tackle this with logic and you're, you're going to say this puzzle is this, but your character's not that. You know, I'm not, I'm not super strict about that. The, the big thing that I've really appreciated from playing Twilight 2000 and, and even before then, just in general, a system that wasn't D&D, you can, you can do so much with that. I was enamored when you were talking about the one ring uh, mm -hmm. and, and just that. And I said, that's so, it's so cool <laughs> because you can let the game setting and the thematic elements of, of uh, the setting, I guess, but you can let that carry forth your character mm -hmm. and have that impact their, their decision-making. I mainly do D&D stuff, but I'm, I'm really bad with characters. <laughs> which is which is not a not a great thing to say, but but the big thing for me is I thrive at, at doing world building. I, I I mean I could talk too long about that, but basically you know a light touch, but push in a direction that makes people have to make choices mm -hmm. and have it be consistent and constrained. And now they're having to engage with the setting, and that's what defines their characters beyond their class. Yeah, and also kind of <clears throat> in some ways beyond system too. I mean the One Ring. <clears throat> the One Ring mechanizes Middle Earth in a way that I've never seen work before. It's it's a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. 
Boy, you, you've never really thought that system is that big of a deal because you just kind no. of like cobble things together. Yeah, I, I'm really kind of a system agnostic kind of guy uh, because what I find is as soon as you get a system with players that are familiar with that system, their decision-making matrix is tied into that system. Hmm. And they start asking, what can I do? What do the rules allow me hmm. to do? What do the rules sort of pigeonhole me into when it comes to this situation? And they think that good playing is knowing the rules well enough that they can pick the optimum choice of what they can do. And I don't think that's role-playing at all. That's board gaming to me. I think what players should be asking themselves is, what should I be doing? If I have this outlook, if I have this background, if I have this value system, and I find this myself in this, this fantastic situation, whatever the system is, the question is, what should I be doing? That's in line with my values. That's in line with the expectations of the other people that, that are expecting me to watch their back. And we're in these life-defying moments. If you get that gritty about the situation, you just are not looking at the rules at that point. You're thinking about what would a person or some type of demi-human do with their backdrop and their values. And how do we get through this challenge with as much health as possible? So I don't, I don't know if the rules really, they're not important to me. At that point, I, I, I'm, I totally understand what you mean. I mean, we've all had that experience where, oh, we played an eight-hour session and not a single dice was rolled. It was all pure role-playing, which is great. I, I've come to sort of the other side of that now where I'm like, but I want the system to be engaged, not, not on a min-maxer level, because I totally know what you mean, right? People thinking, well, wait a minute, if I, if I use the system, then I can achieve a victory condition or whatever for my character so i I get that but again it goes back to the one ring where the one ring the system and the characters are so perfectly integrated in terms of how it works that the system propels the player to dive deeper into that character and do the right thing right to to play the hero in middle earth and it was funny because there's a time in the game <clears throat> where it's basically played in two phases. There's the adventuring phase and then there's the, the fellowship phase. Mm-hmm. So you kind of game out a little bit of what their lives are like when they're not, quote unquote, on the adventure. And that's the time where you can do things like, oh, well, I buy these benefits and I, you know, I, oh, I've got this heirloom sword now or something. But what was interesting is that my players, because they were so invested in their characters because of the system, it was never a case of, well, I think I should I should take this perk because that's going to make me stronger. It was always, I think I should take this perk because this is informed by what my character has decided in the past few months or whatever. Yeah. And that's the that's the golden spot, right? That's where that's like, yeah. ah, yeah, now, now system and character choices are fully integrated. Yeah, you know? that's a mature player with a mature setting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Pretty rare, though. I don't see that happening in the 5e Well, landscape. all you have to do is go on Roll20 and get a random group. You see that all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you Woo! go, Dick! I used to be that guy. Uh, back when I was a, a young kid, probably 20 years old, I had a gaming group. And at the end of every session, I would make what we used to call a zine. It was basically this homemade magazine. And it was a bunch of articles that I would handwrite from different characters or NPC points of view, but I would critique the players for their choices. And it it was a real jerky thing for me to do because it was just infused with arrogance. But I would would coach them through their mid-maxing choices. Like, oh, next level, you really need to pick up this perk because it gives you a plus one. And oh, that God, synergizes. That I was that guy. I was, I was the worst. And I was probably the most toxic. And these are from NPCs? It's a little creepy. It, it was. <laughs> um, 
I would hide behind the facade of the NPC, but it was really me voicing my thoughts on what they should do to be, quote, a good player. And uh, I, th- I think I ran that whole group into the ground, and they really hated me. No. And I, I certainly <laughs> do not pass judgment on them for doing so. I would hate me now. Pendulum has swung to the other side where plus ones and plus twos mean nothing to me anymore. Because when you're in a situation where you have two bad choices, uh, you're at a T-section of a dungeon and you hear a baby crying on your left side and you know that your compatriots went to the right side and you hear them screaming, you've got to make a choice of left or right. And that has nothing to do with plus ones or plus twos. Mm -hmm. And once you make that choice of left or right, uh, you might get into combat and then the system comes into its limelight. And I'm, I'm totally on board with that kind of mechanized combat. You have to have something to roll dice with. But I really enjoy the tension behind those moral dilemma choices. And I think that's where the hero comes from. The hero does not come from a plus five sword or even Back in the day, 18-0 strength. That's right. Remember that? That's not a hero. That's just a dude with big muscles. And I know a lot of dudes with big muscles that are not heroic. It's the person that makes that really hard choice in life. And sometimes they, they receive a lot of pain for it. That's, you know, the hero. If you think about it, I mean, the system is just nothing more than a way to numerically determine what happens because of the choices of a character. That's all it is. But because the, the game started off as I'm going into a dungeon to retrieve loot and become rich and powerful. I always criticized first edition D&D because it was entirely about the stuff. Your character was always defined by the stuff you got. Mm. Right? A fifth level fighter in D&D in, in AD&D was the exact same as any other fifth level fighter. Oh, yep. one might have 1800 strength, one might have 17 strength, but in, in the end of the day, they were all just the same guy. What differentiated them was, well, one guy's got a vorpal sword and another <laughs> one's got a whatever nine lives stealer or whatever. Yeah. And that was it. It was all about the stuff. And so when you have a game which rewards the players with stuff and get the stuff, then that becomes the focus. And the I idea think that's of, a board game. I think that's well, what board games right. do really well. And, and it, it makes sense because it comes from wargaming. And the right? entire exigence <laughs> in those early modules was always go get stuff. Go get stuff. I mean, there might mm. be, oh, save somebody on the process, <laughs> but it's all about... But they'll give you stuff when they save you. You're going to yeah. get some stuff. So you see the descriptions of NPCs... In like it'll it'll show a layout of the farmer's house, and oh yeah, you know Phil the farmer and his wife live here. There's their little dog. And what do every what does every NPC in these modules have? Hit points and where their treasure is located. <laughs> yeah. So what's that telling the players, right? Yeah. You like talk kill about them. murder hoboing, kill like the farmer, <laughs> kill the farmer. Yeah. Talk about values. My yeah. God, I wrote an entire video game out of Java. I, I, I had this whole thing, and I said, I said, wait a second, we, we, you know, you can't build a game. It's a dungeoneering game. I mean, you can't build a dungeoneering game where the only thing that guides the player along is the the promise of riches. And at that moment, I said, video games. I'm done with video games. And it was at that moment that I I picked back up D and D, and I and I had said, what what is the purpose of your you know your adventure? There are so many modes of interaction with the morality and, and the choices that the players make. It could be the setting, it could be you know the mechanics, and it could be neither of those things. It could just be the context of the situation or you know the context of you know, N minus one situation or what have you. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's really interesting. I found that when I was in Iraq, I was doing a, a combat patrol in Tikrit, 
and it was during the, the heavy days of the war when all that was still dangerous. And I had my squad with me, and we all had our pointy sticks of death. You know, you could, you could kill somebody from 300 meters away if you shot well. So it was like this wand of magic missile we all had. And we had our body armor of plus five chest protection, and we had our comms of far-reaching communications. And I remember I started getting geeked out when I was suiting up, thinking, oh, these are all just like magic items that I'm putting on because they supersede anything that the opposition is going to have. And we're walking through this urban setting, and uh, a guy stuck his head out and shot one of my squad mates. And I remember as the squad leader, I had to make all these decisions about what to do tactically and strategically. But at the forefront of my mind was, what is the right thing to do here? Not how do I go get that guy or how do I complete my mission even. It was, what is the morally right thing for me to do? And in the Army, they try to wash that out of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're supposed to be this machine that follows orders and gets the mission done. But I remember thinking at that really vivid moment that there was a tension in my decision-making of what is the Army thing to do and what is the Porik Mulgrew human thing to do. And I remember, you know, the sweet spot is when those two things are the same thing. And I remember uh, I had to order some of my guys to try to go clear the building that this sniper was in. And I had some of the guys take care of my wounded squad mate. It was it was just all really weird gamey in my mind. But I remember thinking if I was playing D&D or some kind of role playing game, I'm not rolling any dice and looking any stats right now. I, this is all just moral value judgments that I'm making on an instant to instant moment. And then it gets even more complex because we we go into the building where we know that there's supposedly a shooter and um, it's a family. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just like walking into the goblin caves and you find this family of goblins. Well, in D&D, you just mow them all down, right? You just fireball the room and you say, yay, I'm the hero. I killed the goblins. (laughs) Well, you can't do that in Iraq. And if you did that in Iraq, you're the villain. Right. You know, you get cased up and, and thrown out. I like replicating that tension of dilemma and that fireballing the, the room is not the answer. And that should be the very last thing that you should be thinking of doing because the amount of carnage that you're about to create is overwhelming. We've played around with uh, systems like Zweihander that put you in a very gritty situation where uh, if you go into combat, there's a high chance that you're not the one walking out. Mm-hmm. Whereas 5e, you're almost guaranteed to be the survivor of combat. Right, because you're, yeah. you're a fantasy superhero. And, and it trivializes the, the choice of violence. Because the choice of violence is always the number one choice in 5e because that's... Everyone expects to get into a scrape to use their cool gear. Right. Yeah, because they're wired through their dungeon. Right, or their special abilities they got because they level up and now they got this feat which says, you know, oh, I can kill six babies with one blow or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So... (laughs) (laughs) And because I can, I should. And because I can, I should. Exactly. And that's... um, and I, I think when I was younger too, I was I always gravitated towards games that were more skill based because you can push a character outside the box, and therefore the expectations on you are only the ones that you decide as a character, rather than, well, I'm a fighter with this big awesome sword. I guess I should be killing that monster when we see it, rather than, well, why are we here and what's the purpose? And I liked games that make violence a dangerous tool and yeah. a costly tool. Yeah. And D and D is not that game. 
D and D is violence is the first and only tool. Oh, and I guess some people might want to talk, but you basically, you know, it's <laughs> it's still predicated on this idea that NPCs are there to be killed, right? Which yeah. is <laughs> which is a very particular style. <laughs> it's very sociopathic. It is completely sociopathic, <laughs> and it's fun well, for think... <laughs> a couple of hours. But to play a campaign like that, oh my god, I don't like to put you know, valuations on systems with that broad brush, because I think it really comes down to what people are looking for when they sit down to game. And, and one way I think about this is that I think some people are sitting down and they want to be in a, in a cartoon, like 5e is very, you know, <coughs> cool action cartoon, yeah. power fantasy, conducive. Some people want to be a little bit more in like a graphic novel. So it may be a little bit of real life, a little bit of, you know, animated, insanity uh and some people want to be in a very uh 4k gritty game of thrones granular experience they want a simulation something that's more historical or more real world just ported into this character that they're embodying uh and and i think different systems fit and are more conducive to those different expectations for sure uh and it's about getting the right group into the right system for the right reasons but I'm playing some games and I'm just picturing like animated madness and mm-hmm. other systems I'm picturing very realistic. and. But the system can, can help set those expectations. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, that's why a lot of people say, like, like you, for you, you're like system, ah, it's, it's not that big a deal. I'll just, I'll use it for whatever I need to. And that's perfectly valid. And it, it mostly because I see like players trying to break out of 5e and they, they think, okay, well, 5e is the role playing game. So therefore, I want to play a really gritty Game of Thrones that's all about politicking and intrigue. So I guess we're going to have to use 5e. And I just want to go like, no, it's the worst game to use for that. Because it's yeah. literally supported not at all for anything outside of its own power fantasy, superhero fantasy stuff. So system, I think, is crucial if you're looking at doing something really specific. And again, to come back to the One Ring, system encourages like talk about moral dilemmas my whole six-year campaign of the one ring was one moral dilemma after the other and that was uh, supported by the system because if you choose to embrace the shadow and that means different things to different characters but if you choose to embrace the shadow the system says okay now we give you shadow points and if your shadow points meet your hope Oh, now you're miserable and bad things start to happen. So the system, it matters. It matters to to provide the experience of, I want to do the right thing, but it's hard. It's yeah. hard to do the right thing yeah. sometimes. Yeah. You know? And I think that's reflective of real life. If you ever yeah, totally. do any introspection, you realize that the, the good choice is hard choice. And I think that's, again, the, the hero in my mind. And that's what I try to replicate around my table is that my players become heroes by making hard choices and they suffer the consequences, and they do it willingly, knowing that they're protecting the rest of this setting from pain and misery and whatever. We've had some really good games. I think one of our Starlight scenarios were the characters were leaving a captured scenario in a cavern, so it was very linear. They had to go to A to B as fast as possible, and during that path, they had all these distractions that were these emotional triggers like they they found a child chained up being tortured and they didn't have time to stop to free the child they had to keep running because they well they always had a choice but the choice of trying to free the child had disastrous consequences and it was very vivid to them what that consequence was it was breathing down their neck and so they had that tension of having to run past the hero moment child 
was tortured, died. You know, it's a, it's a horrible scene. It's something that makes you feel regret, rage, and anger. And it makes the enemies that much easier to mm. kill. When you do, <laughs> you know, you have it justified for shoving a sword into mm-hmm. a lizard man because you just saw him torturing somebody. And I had all these scenes that were they encountered. And I remember my players were just sweating. Travis was one of them. And I think he was the one that said... I'm going to go try to do this thing. And everyone around the table went, no! <laughs> and he tried, and he failed, and uh, it was a scramble to get out of that cave in one piece. But that was, I think, the height of what I see role-playing being is that um, what, it, what is it I should be doing to be the hero, not what do my stats say that I can be doing. That said, not every game is about being heroes either. There are games that are about not necessarily murder hobos, but there's games where people are, you know, like I had a player um, years ago in a Rollmaster game who his whole thing was he wanted to become a criminal lord of the the, the underworld. Um, not the mythological underworld, the criminal underworld. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, <clears throat> and his whole thing was, I want to start a thieves guild. I want to start a thieves guild. Start a thieves guild. So that, there's nothing heroic about that. But he was so motivated. Everything he did was about achieving that goal. So it was very easy to have adventures for him hmm. because I knew what he wanted. So I would mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. tease, okay, here's the thing you want and here's an obstacle in front of it. Deal with it mm-hmm. or not, or try and go after something else. And, and that was great. And he was a vile, awful, awful character, like a murdering thug scum. But it was so much fun to run him because he was so focused on achieving an objective. And so for me as a GM, like I love players that, that have that. And it doesn't matter. Like, obviously in Middle-earth, yes, you want your players to be the heroes in most cases. And, and that system supports that. But not every game is like that. Um, and some games actually benefit from where you have... Uh, like, if you're playing a, 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 in a, a game in the Conan world, hmm. well, chances are your characters are not going to be lawful good paladin types. No, they're going to be like Conan. They're going to be survivors. selfish survivors that have no problem cutting somebody down if it if it achieves what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, th- for me as a GM, I still love that as long as <clears throat> those players are achieving an objective or, or, or chasing an objective. Mm-hmm. And then it's my job as a GM to throw obstacles in front of that so that they have something to do and yeah. overcome. And you know, I, I agree with that. Uh, when I when I say the word hero, that's probably the wrong word. What I mean is that the players have adopted this value system. And D&D uses the alignment system and different systems use different names for it. But it's the idea that you're adopting the values of what you hold dear. And it could be a very selfish, survivalistic Conan approach. Uh, but if you adopt that value system and then you go into these settings, you still have a tension of choices. Um and not as a player, are you feeling the tension? You're feeling the tension from the, the character's point of view of, well, he wants to become this crime lord, but there's this beautiful lady on the law, and he's in hmm. love with her. Right. That tension is real, and it's not your value system that you're playing to. You're, you're, you're playing the character. Yeah. And uh, I think that is the potential of role-playing games is because now you can empathize with a crime lord. Right. You've been in their shoes. You know what kind of things cross their mind and cross their heart. And and you just become a little more empathetic. And I think 
it's a it's a it's a it's a safe space. <laughs> it's, it's a safe way to explore the dark side of human nature in some cases. I I played yeah. a uh, low I was, risk. I was playing in a Warhammer forty thousand game for many 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 years in a rogue trader game, <clears throat> and one of the play, one of the characters I was playing. It started off as an NPC that the GM gave me, and then I basically took him and became he became a main character. But he was a, a dark Eldar, and dark Eldar in forty k are like drow to the max. They are absolute like demon worshiping torturing murdering pure evil psycho psycho evil and i played that my first wife (laughs) we call them canadians yeah that's right (laughs) but i played that character for years with these guys and it was uh, gross Sometimes where I because I was I was true to the character and that was a, that was a game where I was playing someone different than my usual archetype so that was fun but there were there were scenes that I initiated and played through which were just horrifying where the rest of the players were like oh my Ooh. god the whole time but just a couple weeks ago I was talking with a friend of mine who was in that game and, and we were just you know having a drink and talking over Zoom and stuff and he said you know he said. I don't know anybody that could have played that character because it's so vile and it's so awful. And he said, I don't know how you did it, but we loved watching you do that because yeah. as terrible as it was, like as horrible as it was, it was also this weird liberating feeling like we can, pl- this is what the game can do. You can explore psychosis like that and then walk away from it yeah. and know that it's, it's just a character. I'm just playing, you know, so that was an extreme case, but it was it was it was wild, man. And they never ask you to babysit their children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Win yeah. win. There are many advantages. <laughs> was is there any credence then to the satanic panic? Of no. You well, that's interesting. In? See, yeah. I was I was thinking that just as I was telling the story, but but we never really had the satanic panic in Canada. I mean, we heard about it, but we never. Ex- Do you know what that is, Carson? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We we um we never had to deal with it. For us, it was some weird American thing. Uh, some weird Americans with that thinking that because to us it was so obvious that this was just a game it was just you know people think you can utter the words in the monster manual and summon a demon where are those words that'd be awesome like yeah. we'd love to find out I'm gonna start is, with the succubus right there is this there. as right. close to the south as you have been <laughs> yes it is I have a world for you to explore <laughs> yes we child of the gentle north I suppose I am I but. take you to Louisiana where I grew up <laughs> But it blows my mind that people would look at that and think that that's actually a real thing. Like mm. D&D is somehow dangerous because you're actually somebody. To me, it's like, but have you ever read a book of fiction? Okay, mm-hmm. well, if if you read a John le Carre spy, spy novel, are you now a spy? I, I have students whose parents don't let them read Harry Potter because it's witchcraft. Oh, my it's, God. It's still a thing. Well, yeah. we've, we've had all those books censored in the... Yeah, the school year. districts of this, San Antonio. Seriously, books being pulled off the shelf because of that mindset. <clears throat> oh my yeah, god! Yeah, Texas so it's representatives still, it's still pulled out there. like a list of I don't remember if it was four hundred or eight hundred. Once you get into the hundreds, it's kind of silly. Oh my um, god! But yeah, just yeah. yeah. So it's still out there. It's still I a thing, and it's getting. I think that there's a popularity behind role playing games that shields us from the worst of it all, but the mindsets are still out there. I I, I hear that, and I just. I feel like more games need to be 
thrown into the sunlight. You know what I mean? Like people need to experience more gaming now. Role-playing games are a unique form of entertainment. There's nothing. It's not reading a book. It's not watching a movie. It's it's not listening to music. It's 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 all of those and none of those at the same time. So the idea that that could be tainted by ignorance of fools who don't know what they're missing. Like, oh my God, if you could just see, I want to say to these people, if you could just experience what we experience sitting around a table using our imaginations. And, and find me an educator or find me a psychiatrist that doesn't think role-playing is an amazing resource. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing with me running game clubs is about getting kids who need to socialize, right. socializing, physically socializing. I used to run, when I, when I first came in, another teacher said, hey, I got this club, it's too big, I need help, come help me out. And it's because he was doing this video game and board game thing. Uh, after looking at it, through that year before he took off, realized real fast, they don't need any support for video games. <laughs> <laughs> These kids have got that covered. Um, what they need are tabletop games. Yeah. They need to sit down and look at each other and interact with each other and have yeah. to converse with each other yeah. and problem solve together and role play together and do these, these, you know, things around a table. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, all of that stopped. Uh, I had to like rebuild this game club from scratch, but um, just trying to get kids back in uh, in this environment is just feels more critical and more crucial. Yeah. Uh, and then there just seems to be a, we're starting to see this kickback against, you know, the very things that I think this generation is going to need, which is the ability to just be themselves and be with other to, people yeah, yeah socialize yeah be able to let down their guard and yeah converse. that's why i mean like you know we, we talked about at the beginning of this how you know an online game versus an in-person game there's no comparison no you just learn how to be like a good person you learn how to communicate you learn how to listen it, it's a perfect proving ground for that kind of stuff because there's really nothing at risk. It's just imagination, right? And, and I think it was it's such a big part of our formative experience. Totally. For everyone sitting around this table. You know, it gets you through some things. Yeah, totally. Well, you would think I would learn have learned the lesson not to criticize my my player base because they all reject you after a while. I'm still as critical as ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everybody. This is Pork from the Night Watch Games podcast with Trevor, Travis, and Carson talking about all the positives and negatives of role-playing games. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. <laughs>